Notes on atmosphere. What difference does an atmosphere make to an environment, a situation, or a horizon of possible action? If getting a handle on this question is tricky, it is in no small part because atmosphere itself names something elusive and vague. What kind of being does it have, and where exactly does it reside? Deriving from the Greek atmos, vapor or steam, combined with sphera, ball or globe, in its basic sense, the word refers to the envelope of gas surrounding the earth or any other celestial body. Used figuratively, it has a much wider reach, indicating the characteristic tone or pervading mood of a surrounding object or environment. Its referent varies in ontology, but in ordinary speech, we attribute atmospheres to a variety of things, including spaces, situations, individuals, societies, historical epochs, objects, and artworks. But for all their seeming haziness, atmospheres have real effects. They alter the kinds of things that can be said in a space, the kinds of actions that are thinkable, and the modes of sociality that are possible. And I want to suggest that we have still yet to fully recognize and attend to their importance as social and political phenomena of everyday life. A persistent atmosphere of hostility can cause someone to drop a class leave a community, or participate in a protest or a strike. Atmospheres play a role in shaping our motivational propensity, the means by which masses of people and things become primed to act. Take the case of toxic atmosphere, a common enough expression. U.S. employment laws include protection against harassment, resulting in an environment that a reasonable person would consider intimidating, hostile, or abusive. But atmosphere is a term we use to designate precisely what cannot be reduced to a set of discrete, easily identifiable actions that would count or be readily provable as harassment. It names something more nebulous, No one in the office or at the party says anything explicitly rude or does anything overtly hostile, and yet it might be quite palpable that someone is unwelcome. The difficulty of recognizing the effect of atmospheres seems related to the term's ambiguous ontology. It is difficult for what is in the air to attain the status of evidence because it only tenuously attains the status of fact. Created by a myriad of interacting elements, objects, bodies, relations, affects, colors, sounds, smells, speech, and so on, the atmosphere of an office or a classroom or a situation is difficult to pinpoint or localize, and thus always verges on fiction. How can we prove or even show what an atmosphere is like to someone else who has not felt it. And of course, how we feel 
it will depend on who we are, our relationship to others, our familiarity with certain cultural codes, and so on. Hence the ease with which claims about environments experienced as damaging or hostile for certain groups of people, women, minorities, students, workers, can be subject to doubt or simply dismissed by others. And so too, invoking atmospheres in theoretical or analytic discussions appears tainted with irrationality or mysticism. In pointing to the necessity of taking atmospheres seriously, I join a growing number of scholars in a variety of fields, including philosophy, cultural studies, legal theory, geography, architecture, and urban studies, who have recently turned their attention to this concept. I draw on a range of perspectives to consider atmosphere in its philosophical, social, and political dimensions, which are often split off from one another in discussions of the topic. Given the capaciousness of atmospheres themselves, composed as they are of myriad interrelated elements, discussing them requires a similarly capacious approach. In particular, my interests here are twofold. First, I want to examine how creating and manipulating atmospheres in retail and commercial settings have become features of contemporary capitalism. Corporations have long recognized and exploited the efficacy of atmospheres in affecting behavior, but these on-the-ground developments in managing and monetizing mood conditioning have largely been ignored by affect theorists. Second, given that atmospheres dispose us towards certain actions and make certain attachments available, what role can their deliberate fostering play in political life? I want to argue that the response to the growing ubiquity of atmospheric conditioning, as we see in the careful curation of store atmospherics, is not to become immune to their manipulation and curation, but to become more sensitive, so as to work creatively to foster the kinds of atmospheres conducive to social transformation. This project of effective climate change is one that contemporary social movements are already engaged in, especially ones experimenting with new ways of doing politics. In the latter part of this essay, I will consider how atmospheres dispose us toward the world and open new horizons of actions via Amador Fernandez Sabater's assessment of the climate of the recent 15M or Indignados protest movement in Spain. In thinking about how to transition from the punctual assemblies and encampments in the plazas to the ordinary maintenance work of daily life, Fernandez Sabater, one of 15M's most astute theorists, has posed the challenge as a question of how to organize not a movement, but a climate. This latter question requires us to think about atmospheres not only in terms of contained built environments or urban spaces, as has been the focus of most discussions of this concept, but as a way to enable new political horizons 
across time and distance. In our everyday lives, the atmospheres generated by particular constellations of bodies, whether the presence of police in full riot gear at a peaceful demonstration, or the creation of a safe space to talk about difficult experiences, or the joy emanating from a gathering of friends at a party, or strangers in a plaza, are ordinary, omnipresent sites of effective charge. Sensitizing ourselves to the effective climates around us allows us to be more deliberate about creating the kinds of atmospheres amid which we want to live. My aim in this essay is to generate precise descriptions of those hard-to-pin-down but influential aspects of our environments that exist ubiquitously but often go unnoticed. This entails a mode of theorizing that aims less at defining or stabilizing a concept than at sensitizing us to it. The up-in-the-air quality, as it were, of such theorizing will no doubt be frustrating to some, but it is occasioned by the fact that this phenomenon defies our desire for conceptual integrity and resists our usual models of causality. None of this means that it is not worth taking seriously, even if it eludes our standard modes of analysis. We begin with some orientations. Atmospheres are generally thought of as hazy, but their indeterminacy, as Guirno Bohm points out, lies in particular in their ambiguous ontology and location. Where exactly can they be said to reside? And should we attribute them to the objects and environments from which they proceed, or to the subjects who experience them? The atmosphere of a room cannot be said to be a property of any of the things in it, nor is it reducible to an internal psychic state in the perceiver that is simply projected outward. We may come upon a serene landscape, for instance, when we are ourselves greatly agitated, but we still sense this serenity and are often correspondingly changed by it. Atmospheres cannot be reduced to a projection of a subjective feeling, but neither are they purely an objective feature of the world. In Ben Anderson's formulation, they are revealed by feelings and emotions, but are not equivalent to them. The usual oppositions here are slightly askew. In a way, atmospheres are entirely subjective and private, existing only insofar as they are sensed. Yet, they also have a public, quasi-objective reality, perceptible by multiple people and irreducible to any one individual's sensations. They are real and really there, but their very mode of existence can seem to be a kind of unreality. And although they are intangible and cannot be localized, they are also readily sensible and can impinge on on us with great force, even when we are not quite sure how to describe just what it is we are feeling.
A diffuse and ambient surround, atmospheres maintain a close relationship to a more familiarly theorized concept, mood, and the two are sometimes used interchangeably. In recent affect theory, mood is often contrasted both with the more cognitive realm of emotion and sometimes also with the more physiological realm of feeling or affect. Moods are not intentional, not directed at specific objects, but are instead more ambient and hazy, like a surrounding or encompassing cloud. They also have a distinctive temporality characterized by duration. As Rita Felsky and Susan Freiman observe, instead of flowing, a mood lingers, tarries, settles in, accumulates, sticks around, making them ill-suited to the languages of flows and intensities that has characterized one strain of recent affect studies. Like moods, atmospheres have an odd temporality. They can linger for a long time, as moods do, and remain relatively unchanged. Indeed, the very fact of age can lend a place what we call simply atmosphere without qualification, so we say of an old diner simply that it has atmosphere. At the same time, the atmosphere of a room can change in an instant, and it can perpetually form and reform, partly in response to responses to it. Aside from its temporal oddities, the concept of atmosphere also adds to the concept of mood a spatial dimension. Bohm goes so far as to call atmospheres spatial bearers of moods, which fill spaces with a tone of feeling like a haze. Although this formulation risks turning space into simply a vehicle for moods, that can be passed around like a ball, remaining untransformed, it illuminates how moods are not in us, just as they are not things we have. Rather, it is we who find ourselves in, or better yet, with them. But unlike our ordinary uses of mood, which is closely associated not only with subjective feeling, but with caprice and idiosyncrasy, in ordinary usage, the term atmosphere is unmistakably public and oriented outward. We do not speak of someone's interior atmosphere in the way we talk about their interior emotions or moods. And we do not hesitate to attribute atmospheres to spaces even in the absence of people. Thus, the concept makes evident not only the public aspects of affect, but also its non-human dimensions. Effectively tinted spaces result from the constellation of all the elements in a particular environment, which also includes the configuration of space, the objects in the room, and the weather outside 
such that it is possible to speak of the mood work of artificial light dimmers. Feeling the atmosphere is thus always an embodied perception that is more visceral than reflective. An awareness of being in a space and of how other bodies, both human and non-human, are also present there. It is a matter of finding one's body not only affected by its surroundings, but also not easily demarcated from them. For many critics, the interest in atmosphere derives in no small part from the fact that it gives the lie to our illusions of bodily integrity, showing the extent of its porosity. When we feel the atmosphere of a room, we are often feeling other people's feelings in the air. As Teresa Brennan points out, we express emotions like sadness or anger, not only through speech or posture, but also in molecular chemical ways. She singles out olfaction that happen beneath the level of conscious awareness. And as we do so, we qualitatively alter our surrounding environment. The physiological reality of affective transmission undermines not only the divide between the individual and the environment, but also the dichotomy between the biological and the social, between what is a matter of chemicals and what is a matter of constructs. The transmission of affect, whether it is grief, anxiety, or anger, is social or psychological in origin, but it is also responsible for bodily and physical changes. In other words, the transmission of affect, if only for an instant, alters the biochemistry and neurology of the subject. The atmosphere or the environment literally gets into the individual. We are thus forced to reconfigure traditional notions of subjectivity, not bounded by a self-enclosed bodily container, but eminently porous, as well as agency, not proceeding from a centralized rational seat, but embodied and distributed. Taking atmosphere as a primary aesthetic, in the broadest sense of the word, and social phenomenon of lived experience, entails giving up the metaphysics of substance and individualist politics, according to which isolated things, objects, and individual physical persons constitute the dorsal spine of the real. In the age of information and globalization, which has shown the hybridity of humans, other species, technology, and the environment, it should not be surprising that a number of thinkers have turned to the paradigm of gas and air, and, we could add, atmosphere, to invent a new philosophical grammar for the conditions of the present. The corporate world, for one, has long recognized our psychic and bodily porosity. In marketing, in which atmospherics refers to 
the intentional control and structuring of environmental cues. Researchers came to an obvious conclusion beginning in the 1960s. If consumers are influenced by physical stimuli experienced at the point of purchase, then the practice of creating influential atmospheres should be an important marketing strategy for most exchange environments. Multisensory marketing and product design is now routine. Supported by empirical studies of how our perceptions and judgments are influenced by sensory cues in both unconscious and cognitively mediated ways. One recent study found, for instance, that the scent of a recognizable cleaning product led individuals to be tidier when eating, while others show that one mode of sensory perception is affected by another one. For example, Items of clothing were rated as softer in the presence of certain scents. An across-section of Manhattan stores, from Bergdorf to Old Navy, discovered that store temperatures varied as a function of the price of the merchandise. The higher the price point, the colder the temperature in the store. While philosophers debate the processes of air conditioning in our politics, retail corporations have been implementing it literally for some time. Of course, the aestheticization of a commodity world is nothing new. Walter Benjamin famously located its origins in 19th century Paris, positing it as a basic feature of high capitalism. And the effects of aestheticization have been much discussed from Max Horkheimer and Theodore W. Adorno's famous critique of the culture industry to Jean Baudrillard's theory of sign value as a third category of value assumed by the commodity separate from use value and exchange value. But these critiques have tended to focus on the proliferation of images and signs via film, advertising, and other mass media, in the especially urban fabric of daily life. Atmospheres are not re reproducible in the way that images, signs, and discourse are, nor can they circulate in the same way they have become an essential component of the aestheticization of everyday life, as the staging of not only appearance, but of increasingly of experience. Atmospheric manipulation plays a crucial role in what has been dubbed the experience economy. In a 1998 article, B. Joseph Pine II and James H. Gilmore argue that staging experiences represents the next frontier in the progression in economic value, after the extraction of commodities, agrarian economy, manufacturing of goods, industrial economy, and the delivery of services, service economy. 
They define an experience as occurring when a company intentionally uses services as the stage and goods as the props to engage individual customers in a way that creates a memorable event. In other words, when goods and services become merely vehicles for the actual commodity being sold, which is the experience. While the commodification of experience has always been integral to the entertainment industry, it has now spread to areas far beyond movie theaters and theme parks. This situation was foreseen by Andy Warhol, an early theorist of atmosphere. New York restaurants, Warhol remarked in 1975, now have a new thing. They don't sell their food, they sell their atmosphere. They caught on that what people really care about is changing their atmosphere for a couple of hours. That's why they can get away with just selling their atmosphere with a minimum of actual food. Pretty soon when food prices go really up, they'll be selling only atmosphere. Warhol's description is now only slightly tongue-in-cheek. We might also think of bars, which are usually differentiated less on the basis of the products sold. You can get the same drinks at many places than on the basis of atmosphere, which is crucial in determining the makeup of its clientele and the kind of sociality fostered there. Warhol's description is now only slightly tongue-in-cheek. We might also think of bars, which are usually differentiated less on the basis of the products sold. You can get the same drinks at many places than on the basis of atmosphere, which is crucial in determining the makeup of its clientele and the kind of sociality fostered there, which in turn converts its social capital into economic capital. Warhol makes it clear that the cycle applies equally to the artist. Some company recently was interested in buying my aura. They didn't want my product. They kept saying, we want your aura. At the same time that neoliberalism has resulted in the encroachment of market logic to domains previously held separate, aesthetic practices especially those from theater and performance, have become co-opted by commercial interests in the service of managing behavior and disposition. As the expectation grows that what were once goods or services increasingly become experiences, the creation and calibration of atmospheres have become the tasks of a wide range of professions, including many forms of design, cosmetics, interior decoration, advertising, and marketing, to name just a few. How might we respond to the atmospheric engineering that is now a ubiquitous part 
of our built environments. Marketing and design no longer focus on the staging of appearances, but on the modes of interaction and the curation of experience. In light of recent attention to issues of affect and mood, we would do well to expand our understanding of the range of phenomena aestheticization covers. The issue is not one resisting deliberate or engineered atmospheres as false or inauthentic in contrast with natural or spontaneous ones. Such a dualism of authentic versus degraded aesthetic experience may not be the most tactical mode of our contemporary capitalist scenography, where atmospheres are made available as total settings of attractions, signs, and contact opportunities. The critique of mass media tends to rely on developing a greater critical semiotic literacy, but it is not clear how this would work in the case of atmospheres which do not act through representational or semantic means. What is clear from the business of mood management and atmospheric engineering is that we are neither as self-contained nor as self-possessed as we like to think, eminently susceptible instead to myriad influences that escape our conscious awareness. To react to this simply by doubling down on bodily integrity or cultivating the armor of individual rational autonomy seems futile. Instead, I would argue that what we need is to cultivate more attunement to the atmospheres around us and to the possibilities they encourage or deter. We need to be more, not less, sensitized to the atmosphere which means feeling and taking seriously what is in fact there in the air. Recognizing their efficacy in both our theoretical discourses and our practical political strategies allows us to think carefully about what kinds of effective climates are sustaining and sustainable for the world we want to inhabit. But a problem arises when we try to be more specific about how exactly a certain atmosphere is created. When the topic is considered, it is usually from the perspective of reception rather than production. There are bodies of knowledge possessed by those in fields designated as craft or trade, such as stage designers or gaffers but it is difficult to explain analytically or to predict with any certainty the exact factors that cause an atmosphere to be the way it is, or how to ensure that it will be one way and not another. Unsurprisingly, the most systematic attempts to think about this problem come from practical domains, such as marketing and psychology studies of store atmospherics, and the problems these studies encounter illuminate the limits of analytic approaches to atmospheres. 
They tend to proceed by breaking down the components of a built environment into categories, for instance, external and interior variables, layout and design, and human variables. But inevitably, at some point in the listing and tabulating process, such studies run into difficulties. As the lists and tables unfold, growing ever more comprehensive, flooring, color schemes, lighting, music, scents, temperature, ceiling composition, width of aisles, placement of merchandise, employee uniforms, crowding, and so on, it becomes clear that there is in fact nothing that is not salient, nothing in a situation that does not contribute in some way to its atmosphere. The problem is compounded by a recursive responsiveness, especially on the part of human variables, in which people are affected by an atmosphere and their responses affect it in turn.